0: Hi, I'm Danny. I love learning about how things work, from economics, business, health, and psychology, to language, food, crafting, and short story fiction and nonfiction. In this podcast, I'll share what I've learned and what's touched me this week, how it's connected to other things I know, and how I file that knowledge away to apply later in my coaching and my life. As I like to say, everything is about everything. Come on the journey with me as I build a systems theory of our world on the takeaway with Danny. So up first today is a podcast called Master Coaching with Ajit, with Ajit Nawalka from uh, Mind. Valley, I think. And it's the episode, it's episode number 153, Overcoming Your Resistance with Light Watkins. The host is obviously Ajit and the guest is Light Watkins, who has written a book recently called Travel Light, Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life. So this episode is about how to uh, be a minimalist in your life. So I picked out a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. In this one, uh, one thing that stood out that he said was, your inability to follow through is not usually due to a lack of discipline. It's due to a lack of truthfulness about what it will take to you to get the thing done. And I thought that rang so true because uh, I always say discipline is about failure. Knowing that there will be points of failure and optimizing for and planning for those points of failure but it really is focused on the failure part but when you're really really true truthful about what it's going to take for you to get a thing done and how important it is to you when you've been really truthful about how a thing aligns with your values those things that align really strongly with your core values or your most important values you don't need discipline to get done you just do them because they are who you are so he says, get honest about what you need in order to complete the task, then create the conditions to do it. And that's a little bit of a paraphrase, but it's very much the way that I say it, which is if you want to get a thing done, if you think some sort of action is very important for your life, you need to tie it directly with an important goal or an important value of yours. So for example, if you're the kind of person who says health is the most important thing to you, then all things tied to health will be easy for you to do. And even when you learn and incorporate a new idea or uh, some new knowledge about what is health, what means health to you, it will be easy to action on that new information because you then incorporate it as true to that core value of health. So when you do that with each of your actions, it makes your action and and ability to accomplish that action so much more powerful and so much more reliable. If you're unable to tie an action to a core value, you probably won't do it. So I thought that was a really great way for him to phrase that. He also gave us seven principles from his book, and I'd really like to look at this book at some point. The seven principles are one, establish contact with your inner voice. Meditation is the most efficient for that Two, start making your most important decisions from your heart and not your head. Use your heart to decide what to do, like who to be with, where to live, what to do for work and your head to decide how to do it. Three, treat life like there are no throwaway moments. I love that Four, give what you want to receive gotta be careful about the golden rule on that one five follow curiosity six find comfort in discomfort and be prepared for the pushback you get from the world seven embrace the freedom of choicelessness commit to something and allow that commitment to inform the steps of the rest of your life so uh, i also love this and i think it ties right back to the discipline point that once you become something the set of choices you're able to make are, are limited. I like to say there's no such thing as free will because you can only make the one choice that is who you are in that moment. The person who you are in any moment can only ever make one choice, no matter how many choices there seem to be. You are the kind of person in this moment who will only choose one of them. You can never have more than one option. You just may not know which one that is until you make the choice, which is so, so fun. I think that's great. It means that you you can only do what you can do in any moment. And as you incorporate new information, you may become a person who can choose something else. But in any given moment, until you have that additional information, you are not that person. They also referred to the How I Built This podcast, which I love. I'm subscribed to that podcast and I listen to it a lot. I'm sure you'll hear a review uh, or a summary of one of those soon. I also, this is just an aside, which I'll add here to just say it out loud. But I was wondering, where do I find the podcast transcript for this? I wonder if this... um, podcast has transcripts, and if they don't have them, if they'd like them. Hmm, just a thought to ponder. I also listen to The Agile Audit. This uh, podcast is from a scrum master named Daria who is doing coaching calls with with other scrum masters in the industry and they ask questions. And the title of this episode is called His Product Owner is Driving Him Crazy. The host is Daria and the guest's name is Julio. So Julio had several questions for Daria today, which I thought were really, really fun to listen to the answers to. So for question one, he has two teams that he's sort of talking about in this um, coaching call. In the first team, the PO overcommits, consistently overcommits, and after some discussion back and forth digging in, a a part of that overcommitment is because support tickets take up 40% of this team's sprint, but the PO is not accounting for that. And this seems to be like a regular issue at the beginning of the sprint. They don't have these support tickets, but then support tickets consistently come in and they're consistently coming in at about 40%. So they'll assign all of the devs to their full capacity for the sprint, but then those devs have to switch, switch focus in order to take care of the support tickets. And that's a large chunk of what they do. And so they're consistently not delivering on what they, estimate or what they what they pull into the sprint for this uh, for that amount of time also the PO only spends about 10% of their time on PO work or even 0% of their time on PO work but they're spending most of the rest of that time on really important dev work and so Daria's answer was one retrain on scrum roles and prioritization use velocity to help understand what the priorities are keep surfacing the sur- the support t- ticket metrics because this person, the scrum master is already doing that. The, their support tickets are not estimated so that they don't affect velocity, but it's important to incorporate like how much time are they actually spending in support tickets? If it's 40%, then really you're only filling 60% of the sprint, not a hundred percent of the sprint. Also, That reminds me about a good practice that I heard where, you know, you can choose how much of the sprint you fill up when you know that there's going to be extra. So sometimes you'll fill up, say, I've heard anywhere from 70% to maybe 80% of the sprint being filled because there's always something else that comes in, in a sprint. You can anticipate there will be something. Uh, so that was a really good point to remember. Adding peer programming to the sprint, um, because there were some knowledge silos and, having that be a way to say okay even if a dev is not uh, assigned a task at the beginning of the sprint because we know some task is going to come for them later in the sprint then we can start the sprint with peer programming and know that they're going to be doing something they're not going to just have no work to do and also to remind leadership that they have to participate in the adult transformation this was a new role uh i'm sorry it's a new um Thing that their teams are taking on. The leadership's just said, okay, now we're doing Scrum. And there's a little bit of reminding leadership that there's something that they need to do in order for agile practices to really work. Also, that reminds me of a post that I saw on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago where someone said the product manager should always say yes. And since this PO uses, since this PO already likes to say yes, then maybe what might be helpful for them is training them on not just prioritization, but if they are unable to prioritize, training them on saying, yes, we can do this extra thing because they're getting things from stakeholders and from leadership and they want to say yes to everyone. Well, when someone asks, can you do this thing? Can you add this to the sprint? Training that PO to say yes. And what size would that be? Since they're part of the dev team, they can help estimate that we think it would be about this size, here's what we have right now, here's the space, here's the capacity that we have right now, what would you like to switch out in order for us to get this done? By communicating that with the stakeholders, the stakeholders will understand what the trade-offs are and they'll be able to manage expectations that way. But it will also help the PO understand how the stakeholder prioritizes one task over another and it will help them understand how to prioritize tasks when they're asked to do extra things. I think it works really well on both ends. The second question was some devs, devs say that they're not interested in having new skills. So this was related to the peer programming question, that there were devs who were saying like, I don't care to learn anything new. I don't want to know. Um, because there were some who were like only doing mobile, only doing web, And that was the question. And the answer was, you need to go back to the scrum roles and responsibilities. It's part of scrum that we're constantly evolving. We're constantly learning, which really doesn't work for some people. Some people don't want to do it that way. They want to have their job and only do their job and not do anything else. And they have to decide if they want to work in a scrum environment or not. Uh, But this is the environment that it is now. Uh, So I thought that was really good advice. As an addendum to that question, sort of like a sub- question. Uh, Leadership also sometimes says implement Scrum, but they don't explain what Scrum is or how it works. And the response to that was, yeah, a lot of the time leadership knows that they want, that, that Agile works for lots of tech companies, but they're not entirely sure what Agile is or what is involved, especially from their point of view or from their, from them, in order to make Scrum and Agile work. And so Reminding leadership that they have things to do, they have to be um, supporters of Scrum as well. They can't just hand things down. That really, th- we're working together, but the teams are empowered to make the choices about what they what they deliver and how they deliver. His th- his third question was that the company is using safe. And right now their RTE requires a system demo and an iteration review. The devs don't want to do both because they don't understand what those are and the stakeholders don't come to the iteration review anyway. Um, so there, so he was asking, well, what's the difference and should we keep them both? And the answer was, it sounds like there isn't a difference between them with any framework. You have to make sure that you understand why you're doing a thing. If leadership insists, then maybe doing a stakeholder survey about the usefulness of the two meetings would be in order and make the system demo and that you can make the system demo, which is kind of the same as a sprint review for Scrum, longer in order to allow for more stakeholder feedback that might help get rid of one of those redundant meetings. Then there was a fourth question, which was not everybody talks during retros. A couple of solutions that were proposed for that were there are lots of different ways to run a retro, of course. Um, You can do one sticky note per person and say like everyone needs to do at least one sticky note. You must do one sticky note she mentioned daria mentioned that she's used a talking stick this sounded like an in-person kind of thing and she used a talking stick where you'd hand the talking stick to the person and they had to fill two minutes no more no less and that there was a time when she handed a talking stick to a person and they were like i don't have anything to say and so she was like well we're gonna sit in silence for the next minute and 50 seconds and so they did just to emphasize that it was essential like it was required it wasn't optional there was also the point made that sometimes uh, that Julio was preparing in advance, uh, preparing, he was asking the team if for topics they wanted to talk about during the sprint retro and that it was clear that perhaps there were things that the team wanted to talk about in the moment that they hadn't thought about before or that they hadn't said before for whatever reason and allowing some time for that and doing a dot vote to decide which topics to talk about. And then doing a mad sad glad so that you don't have to do too much um prep for those ones that pop up at the beginning, uh, also doing breakout rooms and giving each pair a topic and then having them present solutions for whatever that topic is. This was a really good coaching call to listen to. It helps me remember like as I'm listening to how people are implementing Scrum with their teams, it reminds me about like all the different ways that I've practiced and that I've used even before I have formally been a scrum master or agile coach different ways that I have applied these things and so that I can bring them into my next role I also thought I would I really love I wrote out a post one time about how to apply scrum for your life because Julio talks about using scrum for his life and I really think it's a great idea I love the scrum structure and so I think I may do a podcast about that. So this podcast is from Articles of Interest. It's the Corduroy Appreciation Club from Season 4, Episode 11. The host is Avery Travelman. And she's talking about corduroy in this episode. I love textiles. I love the history of textiles. I love learning like where they came from and why they are the way that they are. Um, So this was a really fun one for me. So I think it was really funny that they started with corduroy is both snobby and unsophisticated. (laughs) So people really hate on corduroy for some reason. and I don't know if there's any other textile that gets like so much crap (laughs) her wearing it than Corduroy. So this was gonna this was like a really interesting one for me. Avery finds a club devoted to Corduroy and she as soon as she shares it with someone else, the website disappears. So they go about like trying to find this person who created the Corduroy Appreciation Club and like information about information about the club and about the fabric. What they find is Jason Diamond, which is someone who they already know. He didn't know about the club, but he was really interested, and he had some like he sort of led them down a path of more information um One thing I thought was interesting was that uh corduroy is measured in whales, which is the width of the ribbing lines, and the nicer it is, the thinner the whales are. It's also very rigid it was his so it was historically used for workwear in the same way that denim was it's usually a hundred percent cotton like denim and the feel gives velvet vibes without the drape which they're going to talk about they talk about denim again later which i thought was really funny but that denim connection i made on my own 11 was the first day that the club met because it looks the 11's the ones look like corduroy whales the meeting structure at the time was there would be like an intro speech from the creator of the club the founder of the club Then they'd have some sort of keynote speaker and then they'd have like a cocktail hour which i love the idea of just people walking around talking about the corduroy that they have on on a regular ish basis that's just so fun to me then they talked about this thing called senior cords in indiana which was usually pants sometimes skirts always yellow and you could only wear it when you were a senior in college and then a senior in high school And they would draw these like elaborate decorations on these yellow corduroys and like that was like your yearbook. You'd wear these yellow drawn on corduroys to show like you were a senior. But it started at Purdue uh, where the students would wear these corduroys at the games And then other schools would use the same color, but then they would draw on their corduroys in other colors. And then it became like multicolored kind of thing. It fizzled out in the 70s and now it's like cool and expensive to buy these senior cords. Bodhi fashion brand uh, started creating custom senior cords because they really liked that this was a ritual that young people created. Um, And then they do live drawing events once a year, which I understood to mean like they're doing, I think that meant that they're like having live events where artists are drawing on corduroys because it's really hard because of the whales to draw well on corduroy, which I think is crazy. They're having like events where people just watch people draw on corduroy. And then they finally find Miles, the the, the founder of this club. He said he went to Bolivia where he saw a lot of corduroy, probably coming from used clothes from the U.S. because nobody wanted corduroy in the U.S. at that time. Eventually, they decided like corduroy and denim together is okay, which is great, like because corduroy and denim are so similar in terms of how how and why they were created. And then that velvet is the enemy. Like literally, it said velvet is the enemy. Then Cotton Inc. was sponsoring the club meetings for a while. Like the actual like cotton... Ink company like the touch, the feel of cotton, the fabric of our lives. Yeah, that company was sponsoring the club meetings, which is great. They tried to sell stuff, but apparently that didn't work really well. And at the peak there were about five thousand members worldwide of this club and they finally quit on eleven eleven. He just had enough basically. So I just really loved learning about the history of this textile. It's not one that I would look into any other time. It made me think, was knit ribbing first or was corduroy first? And because a lot of the reasons that they said they liked corduroy, you know, being the whales and the rigidness that it would sit flat um, is kind of the way that we use ribbing for, for knitting. Ribbing helps your fabric sit flat where stockinette um, if you are a crafter. Makes your fabric curl on the ends. So I thought that was a really interesting question. I wonder. I may look that up, or I may not. Um, I also search, Google searched corduroy and denim; those two those words together, corduroy and denim. And I forgot that Davis David Sedaris wrote a book called Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. And of course, David Sedaris has done a lot of like excerpts from that book on the This American Life podcast. Um, and so it's been a long time and make, it made me want to go back and re-listen to some of that and and think about like the context of corduroy and denim and like that being workwear and that he's sort of giving a memoir of his family who who is from North Carolina. And yeah, I just it made me want to go back to that. this article is called, Meta and Salesforce are looking to rehire some workers they just laid off. It's putting those people in an awkward spot. <laughs> this was on Business Insider, um, the summary is that Salesforce said that their employees were family and then they laid them all off. So now they're trying to rehire a bunch of those employees and that those employees are having some trust issues. It's not funny to be laid off. I was also laid off last year. So that's not the part that I'm giggling at. The part that I'm giggling at is the whole idea of having trust issues with a company. Um, So if you believed that what the company said and thought if you believed what the company said and you thought you were family, which a lot of tech companies really like to do. And I get it. They're not being just disingenuous at the beginning. Like when you're small, that it really does feel like family. And I'll talk a little bit about that again later. But a lot of tech companies like to use this language of family and they say, Oh, we're a family and we care about each other, blah, blah, blah. Um, And if you thought that family meant that you would not be fired, it would make sense that you'd be left with a feeling of mistrust when you are then laid off. And then additional mistrust when you consider coming back to that company. But if you're looking for a job, as let's just say like, first of all, companies should stop saying that we're a family. And I think if we had any other language for close relationships, that was not family we might not use family but right now family is kind of the only close relationship word that we have in this language and so I understand why they're using family and why then people feel confused about what that means um, later but if you're looking for a job as an employee where you can be reasonably assured that you won't be fired tech is probably not the place This is the second large layoff cycle. The last one was in 2008. I think the last one was in 2008. It's now 2023. This one started in 2022. I think we can expect it every 10 to 15 years Um, in tech. Like this is just what it is. This is the nature of the thing. But if if you do want a job with more job security than tech, then maybe government or another uni- unionized job sector would be the best place for you but really you have to take with your you have to take the understanding in tech that you could be laid off at any time that it's not pro- that you are no longer profitable for the company no matter if you're doing a good job or not you should understand that the company profitability is the most important thing not your well-being So that is just something to keep in mind. No one is being mean or malicious, but I do think that it kind of sucks that we're still not being transparent about that relationship. And whether you like it or not, you can find a place that's maybe not doing it that way, who's less concerned with revenue, but I don't think it'll be a tech company. I think small business is a great place to maybe do that. But anyway, Um, but really, I think that... We could solve a lot of this confusion by thinking of our relationships in tiers. So your work relationship, so I think of my relationships in three, let's say four tiers. Tier one is I will inconvenience myself to serve this relationship. This is where my family and my closest friends go and there are not very many people in there. Not even all of my family is in tier one you don't get to be in tier one just because you're family but my closest family is tier one as well as my closest friends like I said tier two is I will mostly serve this relationship when it's convenient occasionally I will go out of my way to serve the relationship and that is other friends who are close but not your closest friends just like you just can't have that many people in your close friends group it's a larger group Um and mostly that's a that's a convenient it's you, you it's mostly convenient occasionally inconvenient your tier three is i will only serve this relationship when it's convenient and never any other time that is a very large group of acquaintances and then your tier four is i will never serve this relationship could be strangers could be people you don't like it could be it could be some of your acquaintances who you're like i mean maybe we'll happen upon each other but i'm not going to go out of my way for it So from my perspective, your relationship with work should never be tier one. It should at best be tier two unless you own the company. If you own the company, then maybe you can make that a tier one relationship. And that means that if you don't own the company, then your relationships in tier one and your relationships can be with people, with companies, with brands, I would say don't have your brands and companies be tier one. But anyway, um, your relationships with people in tier one should trump tier two when you have to choose. And I always think for, for me, for example, my kids are in my tier one and my work is in my tier two, except when it's my own business. So when it's when something inconvenient is happening with my children, My children, my relationship with my children trumps my work. I will do, I will prioritize whatever my kids need before what my work needs. It doesn't mean they need to be in contrast all the time and that I only ever do things for my kids and I never do work. It just means that when they're in conflict, my kids always win. When it comes to a company that I don't own, I just can't see a conflict where I would choose my work over my kids. I just don't see it. Um, I have seen things or times where people choose work over their partner and where I would put a partner usually in a tier one. Um, what it seems to me like is if you are choosing your work over a partner, maybe that partner is not actually tier one. Anyway, just something to think about. Um, But in any case, try having your work be a lower tier. You can have your relationships with your co-workers be a higher tier, but never put your work over tier two unless you own the company. has been the takeaway with Danny. If you're looking for a scrum master or lifestyle coach, you can find me at dannysimon.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn at Danny Simon. See you next week.